Welcome to the Hertie School. Hertie School. The Hertie School. Well, we live in Berlin. Great to be back in Berlin. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. Emmanuel Macron. Professor Habermas. Thank you, Ambassador Schinger. Minister Gabriel. This is Germany's moment to shine. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. It might be said that um, you will soon discover, not might be said, it's an empirical matter, that I'm going to ask more questions than provide answers. The theme of popular sovereignty is profoundly powerful, uh, the questions that surround popular sovereignty uh, today, including the core question, who is the people? Um, not just uh, some of the participants in planning this event, but also two of my children asked me, uh, is that grammatically correct? Um, <laughs> who are the people? Um, but who, who, the, the relationship of who is and who are um, is also part of the puzzle that um, confronts us. So let's begin um, with questions of the standing and imagination, what I call the standing and imagination of popular sovereignty. Um, let me first cite somebody who's not on this slide, uh, Margaret Canavan, who wrote a book a decade or so ago called The People, and who argued that when the people is invoked, when ideas of the people are invoked, that very act of invoking the people creates power where um, only some or none had existed before. And one of the first questions I, we should be asking is, when that happens, for whom is power created and how? Now, this is a subject of fundamental importance, but arguably, at least as the uh, historian of ideas Richard Burke has argued in a very interesting volume that he um, edited with Quentin Skinner, um, uh, Burke noted in his introduction that popular sovereignty um, lacks a significant conceptual uh, history, a history the concept has not previously been attempted. And he also points out that whatever else we mean by popular sovereignty, we tend to associate popular sovereignty with a level of majesty of the people. Um, as he puts it, majesty combined with dominion. Um, this is not an entirely new idea. He invokes Rome um, and the Roman uh, status of the people as supreme authority. But as you'll see in a few minutes, I think something dramatic happens um, in modern times. And by modern here, I mean 17th century and beyond. And then there's an indispensable book about popular sovereignty by Edmund Morgan, uh, one of the really truly great historians of America who died in his mid-90s a few years ago. And one of his major books called Inventing the People, the Rise of Popular Sovereignty in England and America, designates popular sovereignty as a fiction. Um, it's a... Um, in fact, I, it reminded me, having reread Morgan recently, to go back and look at an essay that Harold Lasky, the leading English thinker and political activist, wrote in 1921 on the theme of popular sovereignty, in which he wrote, it is clear that popular sovereignty is an impossible fiction. Um, but there you also see Morgan saying that a fiction, to be effective, must bear some resemblance to fact. And I think one of our pressing questions is precisely that. What is the relationship between the idea of popular sovereignty as 
not just a fiction, but perhaps in some sense an impossible fiction? Can the people rule? Can the people govern? Can the whole people govern? Especially in large and immense states where they can't meet face to face, as they might have uh, in Athens, uh, or even for a period in Rome. Um, what does it mean to say the people rule? Now, here are two images, and what shocked me in looking at them by chance, side by side, was how alike they are. Um, the one on the left is, uh, uh, was called by the artist, uh, Robert Cruikshank, who was a major 19th century American artist, President's Levy or All Creation Going to the White House, Andrew Jackson Inauguration, March 4th, 1929. And what you see are the people, many people, and I'll say more about who they are in a moment, gathered in front of the White House. Um, and then on the right, um, you see rather different time and place. This is Warsaw. Um, many of you will know that Father Jerzy Popiuszko um, was a leading um, uh, uh, solidarity priest um, in, uh, in the 1980s, um, really from the beginning of Solidarność. Uh, Popiuszko was outspoken conducted a monthly mass for the nation in his church, which was explicitly anti-regime, and we know that he was murdered by the regime um, in 1984. And um, this is a photo of the funeral for Father uh, Papiushko at his church um, uh, in Warsaw. The images are almost indistinguishable, and they have at least the following uh, three elements. There is a multitude. And the multitude are there not just as uh, random individuals interested in what's happening, but in their, in their role as citizens, um, that is, as, um, as people with a, um, an agonistic sense of a role of a people. The, um, uh, the people are there to make demands, to express interests, to um, uh, state preferences, to exhibit passion. And what we see is these citizens are there also to assert authority. We, the people, uh, are here to express collectively the power that only comes from joining together as a people. And I will return to these two images um, later on. Next we see a, a, a sentence that uh, I would call um, in the in colloquial Americanism, a knock your socks off a sentence. It's, in, it's written by uh, Tocqueville, uh, Alexis de Tocqueville. It's chapter four of book one of Democracy in America. And uh, it's even more lovely in French than in English, but it's telling us that the people rule in American uh, politics, in American political life, as God rules the universe, as God rules uh, the universe. And what I've done is put a bracket around the word American um, for the following reason. If we took out the American, you could say this today as a legitimating claim of virtually every regime on the face of the earth. The people rule, say, regimes, um, and these are dictatorships as well as democracies, as God rules over the universe. Um, Today, it's almost impossible to find a political regime that does not trace its ultimate authority to the will of the people. And we know we, it happened in this country. It happened in Stalin's Soviet Union. It happened in uh, Mussolini's Italy. The claim that a particular definition of people 
the race, the nation, the working class, uh, the class, uh, were uniquely represented um, by those who led and shaped the nature of the regime. So popular sovereignty has shown itself to be extraordinarily flexible, capable of legitimating a wide range of regimes and political projects. And for that reason, it is um, one of the most appealing uh, concepts that we possess as analysts of politics and society, and one of the most uh, potentially dangerous. And it's this scope from um, a, a normative and practical appeal to normative and practical danger that motivates what I have to say this evening. I would finally just add a footnote. When Tocqueville wrote this about America, he he thought he was coming to America to see the future. And in this respect, he certainly did. Um, that is, he observed a regime, then I would say the only regime on earth to live what might be called a full popular sovereignty. I'll say what I mean by that in a few minutes, so suspend any disbelief. Um, he wanted to see the future, and in fact, the future has come. And those of you in the room, uh, there are a good many here who are far more uh, capable of uh, and specialist in Tocqueville than I will know that Tocqueville also deeply worried. Um, he both uh, appreciated this trend, the, the, the grounding of modern democracy and popular sovereignty, but he also anguished over it. He saw prospects for unimagined kinds of despotism, um, despotism greater than that which could be found in, the, in any ancien regime. Now, in the announcement for this talk, um, there were a series of orienting questions. I'm just quoting from the publicity that um, may have brought you into the room. It's about current debates and Brexit in Catalonia, anti-immigration, uh, anti-immigrant nationalism, uh, challenges about who governs with diverse types, regard to diverse types of policy, raise difficult questions about who constitutes the people and when and how they should participate in collective decision-making. And the announcement went on to say, popular sovereignty, the foundation of democratic politics, is based on the idea that legitimate authority rests with the people. And then here are a series of questions. Which conditions made this type of authority possible? It didn't exist, uh, at least from, 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 certainly didn't exist in Europe after, uh, after a certain moment of Roman history. Um, how did it come about um, in modern times? What is the scope and dimensions of this authority? When and in what matter should the people make collective decisions? Who, in theory and in fact, are the people? And on what bases and criteria are they or, or is they composed? And how shall we judge which claims about the basis of peoplehood are respectable and which are not? This is our daily debate. And what sensibilities and norms should we bring to this kind of evaluation? I'm probably going to skip the next slide, which looks too much like mainstream political science, but let me just, it's at least, well, let me say what's here. Um, it's, it's a model, you know. You have the, Forget what it, what it says in the circles and the arrows. I, I, I'm not happy with this. But the, but the title, Making a People Process Choice and Consequences, um, some of you may know a recent book. It's a complicated book called The Time of Popular Sovereignty by Paulina Ochoa Espeo, which has a, a, a profound idea, uh, one central profound idea, which is that the people 
is never a given or a thing. The people is the product of a process. Uh, whatever we mean by the people in public life comes out of some kind of intellectual and institutional process that unfolds over time, which implies that the making of a people and how we answer who is or who are the people, or who, who is the people especially, is a matter of choice, that is there are always options, and has consequences. So the question is not without a power. Now the, I'll say in a moment about what I think the conditions of modern popular sovereignty were, but we're really talking about 17th century as the moment of, uh, of origins, a post-medieval world that generated not first pop, it did generate popular sovereignty ideas, but it generated sovereignty first in a modern sense. Uh, sovereignty is a theory of authority within a nation state framework, which in really bad shorthand would be called the post-Westphalian um, uh, state, but allow me that bad shorthand. Then, out of, in conditions under which sovereignty was imaginable, there emerged people with determinate identities who are, or there are multiple kinds of people and identities that could be formed as the people for a given polity, and once formed, they interact, that people has a relationship to civic principles, and those principles Hobbes taught us could be absolutist, they could be parliamentarian, they could be democratic. There are different kinds of civic principles which get expressed in institutions, and those institutions are propelled by alternative conceptions of who the people is and what popular sovereignty looks like. So these are steps in a process. And then the last introductory remarks really are just the order. The talk has three, three parts, if you can bear with me through them. The, I want to spend a little time on concepts and origins. What do we mean by popular sovereignty? Where did it come from? The who, what, and when of popular sovereignty. Then I'm going to take a case that is more familiar to me than others. Uh, might even guess by my accident, accent, it's, it's not modern China or um, uh, even Germany, um, but the United States. And I want to um, say a bit about the formation of an American people who um, you will see were described by a leading figure in the 1820s as um, an essentially radical process. Um, and then I want to end with uh, who is the people and especially focus on questions of loyalty and obligation. So here we go to the main thing. This is part one, concepts and origins. So the people. It seems to me whenever we say the people, we mean three things. And the most interesting questions have to do with the relationship between and among these three layers or levels. Think of it as a kind of ladder of abstraction going with a a rung at the bottom to a rung higher up and then one highest up, which is the most abstract. So the people, we can think of the people as a population, as a multitude of natural persons, as people like we, with proper names. We all have names. We're individuals and we belong to groups um, with identities, mores, preferences, interests, uh, values, and so on. It is what Habermas calls the sphere of private people who come together as a public. And that's the quote, as you see, from his 
classic structural transformation of the public sphere uh, book. Second, the people always appear as, or don't always appear, can appear. Some people appear as citizens. And that is a subset of the population that is eligible to participate equally and actively in the institutions of representative government. And there is no place on earth, um, uh, certainly including the United States, certainly including um, uh, Germany, where every person who is present with a, a proper name um, is a citizen with, those, um, with that standing. And then if you go up a, letter, a level of higher abstraction, we find a single abstract people. The people in the American Constitution, the first words in the American preamble Constitution are, we the people create, authorize, do, make a regime. A single abstract people with legitimate authority. I say here it's the product of a kind of secular form of enchantment. Whether it's secular or religious, we can debate. But the, it's a form of enchantment. And it's the ultimate invisible source of public authority. The multitude is visible, proper name people. Citizens have uh, degrees of visibility, um, but many of the acts of citizens, like voting, are not visible um, uh, to others. But the we, the people, is never visible um, uh, at that level of abstraction. Yet so that, that's where the most godlike powers of a people uh, actually or potentially reside. And then about the timing and content. Now, there was a profound question um, that was being asked in the 17th, 18th, into the 19th centuries, uh, certainly in the West. Could the ancient principle of popular self-rule accommodate, that is a principle found amongst the ancients, could that principle accommodate to the reality of modern states and societies? And by the 17th century, modern states that had concentrated authority took it out of the what Perry Anderson called the parcelized units of the medieval world and concentrated them in big capital cities that claimed um, indivisible authority over territory and people. That's what a modern state, any modern state, is a state that claims indivisible authority over territory and population that has a distinctive ensemble of institutions that is different from the economy or from other kinds of institutions, and always has a normative story, a legitimating story. So could popular sovereignty accommodate to that new state reality um, of scale and including after the Reformation and counter-Reformation an extraordinary degree of uh, religious pluralism. How could a people form in the context of these new kinds of states and new kinds of religious pluralism? And there, there were, um, I think, three distinctive kinds of quite radical inventions. The first I'm associating with uh, Thomas Hobbes, the second with John Locke, and the third with various thinkers, including Locke, but not only Locke in England and America, in America especially James Madison. Um, the first is Hobbes' notion of constituent power of the people. It is the people emerging out of the state of nature for Hobbes 
who make both civil society and a political order, not divine right. This is a radical break with ideas which were common through the medieval period of the divine right of kings. It's the people who make the regime. And as a footnote, we associate, of course, Hobbes with absolutism. He preferred monarchy. But he makes very clear in his writings, the people as a constituent power can create a kingship, they can create an assembly, they can create a democracy. It's up to the people. But for Hobbes, once they create, they stand back. They've yielded, they've delegated their authority to the regime they have created. And that brings me to John Locke, radical revolution number two. And forgive me because I'm simplifying some things that are more complex. People spend lifetimes studying these one lines, so it, it's not fair what I'm saying. But second, Locke, who also had a theory of constituent power, there's also an emergence through social contract out of the state of nature in the work of John Locke, didn't have the people disappear after they make a regime. For John Locke, the central institution of a modern commonwealth, commonwealth, belongs to the common people, all the, the citizenry, um, the central institution is the legislature. It's a system of political representation. He says that's the supreme site. And the people don't disappear from that supreme site because they select the representatives, and the representatives are beholden to them. So parliamentary sovereignty is a product of the Lockean revolution. Not uniquely, but you can see it in Locke. And then you have what I'm calling here an agonistic citizenry because the American Revolution was a revolution against parliamentary sovereignty, both empirically and conceptually. The Americans said British parliamentary sovereignty is corrupt and it's too limited. The, the representation only includes a narrow uh, body of the people. And moreover, if you watch the way they operate, we don't want to operate like that. We've learned through self-government as a distant set of colonies that you can have a much more active citizenry, even a conflictual and conflicting citizenry, an agonistic citizenry. So for the third moment of popular sovereignty becoming modern, we have popular sovereignty that is inclusive beyond the constituent moment, the making of the regime moment, and it's, um, it's present beyond um, the, the system of political representation in the legislature. Now, you see, interestingly, in the text that of Tocqueville, which I cited the one line before, that in fact um, Tocqueville refers to all three kinds of popular sovereignty or the absence of. There are countries in which a power, in some sense external to the social body, acts on it and forces it to march in a certain direction. That's a reference, I believe, to divine right theories. The power is external to the people, to the social body. It acts on it, and it forces the people to march in a certain direction. But then you have other countries in which force is divided being placed at once inside society and outside it, I believe that to be a reference to parliamentary sovereignty. Nothing of the kind exists in the United States. 
There society acts by itself and on itself. No power exists but within its bosom. It's fair to say that the people govern themselves. The people reign over the American political world as God rules over the universe. They are the cause and end of all things. Everything proceeds from them, and to them everything returns. I had lunch today with Klaus Ofer, a distinguished member of the Hertie community, who, alas, um, has another meeting tonight, is not here, but we talked at length about this talk. And he, he said to me, commenting on this Tocqueville passage, and he's written on Tocqueville, that um, when we say the people rule like God, we could mean one of two things, or one or, or, or the other, or both. We could be saying the people are all powerful, or we could be saying the people are all knowing. God is both um, a powerful and knowing. And what Klaus said, if he'd allowed me to quote him, I think he would, alas, the problems begin because the people sometimes either are or are invoked as being all powerful, but the people can never be all knowing. And that's where some issues of popular sovereignty begin. But that's worth thinking about. Now, early, just very quickly, early modern political sovereignty began in a context. The ideas of Hobbes and Locke and Madison were in a context of state formation, which I already said what I think it is about um, what a modern stateness is. Um, also in the context of larger and more complex social structures and communities, religious plural, including religious pluralism, including a massive advances in transportation technology, which led to contestation over boundaries of territories and persons, collisions of cultures and civilizations, and what my colleague, uh, actually a former student of mine, a, a history colleague at Harvard, uh, Sven Beckert, calls war capitalism of empires and global markets from the 16th century forward, and of course a period of slavery um, capture, surveillance, and trade. The ideas about popular sovereignty could not elide any of these issues. The making of the people as a force um, had to, to grapple with the making of modern states, human pluralism, and the global expansion of Europe, including in trade, in empire, in slavery. And that, of course, immediately raises issues or ra I mean, I'm going too quickly, but you will follow along, of course, easily, because for all of us, it's clear that when you have that kind of set of overlapping and accumulating transformations, at minimum, from the idea of popular sovereignty, questions of inclusion and exclusion must appear. Not, not can appear, but must appear. Let's go back to this picture. Who's there and who's left out? Who are the people in front of the White House? Who are the people in front of uh, Papiushko's, uh, Father Papiushko's um, church? Well, uh, I dare say um, there must have been in Poland in 1984 a good many people who, if they didn't like the regime, maybe many did like the regime. Um, others were employed by the regime. Um, uh, others were afraid to say a word about the regime. The whole people was not at the church. Many persons are absent um, for reasons of ideology or preference or uh, fear. I actually don't know, I don't think very many um, 
conservative Catholics, even deeply anti-communist, um, would have been present at Papa Yushko's church, who was seen as a, a radical priest and who was um, uh, uh, even theologically radical as well as politically um, radical. The, you know, the Radio Maria Catholic Church wasn't represented, um, at least the Radio Maria, as I came to know it later, um, uh, wouldn't have been there. And in the American scene, uh, there are no women, I believe. Maybe just, there are a few. You see some skirts, but it was dominantly men. Everyone here is white. And, uh, but it's still quite inclusive because it included people from every region of the country and we know from different walks of life. But there's inclusion. There certainly is inclusion here. It's not just exclusion of who's not there. It's who is there. Um, people are there in all three respects as a multitude as citizens and as claimants of authority, they are addressing central institutions of uh, public, uh, political, social, religious, communal life. And they are making demands to those institutions. But there's also exclusions, as I said. And the issue of exclusion is a profound one. Here I'm quoting Judith Sklar, the great late, alas, political theorist um, at, at Harvard. Um, this is an essay of hers that I love called Obligation, Loyalty, Exile, 1993. And I'll start with the bottom quote. Governments frequently abuse residents under their jurisdiction by denying them membership in the polity and other right, not as a matter of legal punishment, but because they belong to a group thought to be inherently unfit for inclusion. Question. What are the criteria of inherent fitness or unfitness for inclusion? The membership question. It's an inescapable question. As I said before, there is no place on earth where every member of the population qualifies for inclusion in uh, civic membership. Second, exiles are often created by governments that betray their own citizens. Governments claim all governments today, as I said, or almost all governments, I know we could talk about North Korea, but the governments claim to be ruling irrespective of the precise type of regime, or it could be an authoritarian regime, it could be a, a democratic regime. Um, they rule by legitimacy given to them by the people. Yet they betray some of the people, their own citizens. They extrude them. Um, uh, in the United States, um, uh, leaving aside race questions, which we'll come back to, but in 1947, the President of the United States, Harry Truman, offered, insisted that every employee of the Federal Service undergo a loyalty test. And if you failed the loyalty test, you could be extruded from various positions. One of the greatest ironies in American, modern American history is the same week that Werner von Braun became an American citizen in 1954 was the week that Robert Oppenheimer, who um, led the effort to build a, a atomic weapon during the war at, at Los Alamos, was uh, removed from security clearance um, uh, uh, in the United States on grounds that he had too many ties to people on the left and the Communist Party in particular, which is not really true, but anyway, moving along. And then finally, the world is fill, full today of people who are stateless um, or uh, people who've lost their standing, dwellers in refugee camps, 
whom Schlar said can best be compared to America's African slaves. Um, whether that's too strong or not, we can talk about and think about. We do know that Hannah Arendt, in The Origins of Totalitarianism, said absolutely the worst status to be in the modern world is to be stateless, to be without a connection to a we the people, a we the people in civic terms. But then there are more questions, the pictures that I put up raised. There's the question of um, the character of the people, the knowledge of the people, the mob-like qualities of the people, the, the tumultuous tide of the people. Um, this is from um, just some quick quotes from uh, about the Jackson inauguration crowd. Mm -hmm. Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, all sorts of people came from the highest and most polished to the most vulgar and gross in the nation. An eyewitness quoted, no one who was there at the time could forget to the day of his death, it was like the inundation of the northern barbarians into Rome. And then, as the waiters opened the door, a rush would be made, the glasses broken, the pails of liquor upset. One could see men with boots heavy with mud standing on the damask satin-covered chairs from their eagerness to get a sight of the president. This is not the kind of um, we the people that I experience uh, this year at Cambridge University, let's just say. Um, and then in a circumstance where you have popular sovereignty at every level, not just as a constituent power, not just as a representative democracy, but as an active, active citizen population, how is it that the population doesn't act like a mob? And when is it and how is it that the population is not available for mobilization by demagogues and dictators? And these are not trivial questions. And then just the description of His Holiness uh, John Paul II um, about the kind of crowd of work, his vision of Poland. Um, in the course of its millennial history, Poland has been a state made up of many nationalities, many religions, mostly Christian, but not only Christian. This tradition has been called and still is the source of a positive aspect of Polish culture, namely its tolerance and openness toward people who think differently, who speak other languages, who believe, pray, or celebrate the same mysteries of faith in a different way. Well, that's a, a, a normatively, enormously appealing um, uh, statement, but you could not say that in the course of its history, Poland has always been made up of uh, a state in which uh, such differences are respected and honored. And we're then left with the question, under what conditions do we have the kind of dream um, and actual history, because there are such moments certainly in Polish history, where human pluralism is the basis of who the people is versus other moments where a much narrower, more constrained and sharp uh, and limited definition of who the people dominates. Part two, American beginnings. Well, note that in the American founding, um, the issues we're talking, I'm talking about, we're talking about, were present from the beginning. The greatest, John Adams, second president of the United States. Uh, the great, but this is well before he was president. There was no United States in 1773. The greatest question ever agitated in all civil states, it is necessary that there should be somewhere be lodged a supreme power over the whole. Where do you get this supreme power? And then this is uh, Gordon Wood, who's arguably the most important historian of early American 
creation of the republic, the doctrine of sovereignty almost by itself compelled the imperial debate to be conducted in the most theoretical terms of political science. It was the single most important abstraction of politics in the entire revolutionary era, that is the issue of sovereignty and popular sovereignty. Every new, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes on to say, in England, legal sovereignty could only reside in Parliament, just as Tocqueville observed, just as uh, others observed. But that's not what happened um, in the United States. And for that reason, James Madison, speaking to the Virginia ratifying convention, said it is in a manner unprecedented, that is, our American revolution, we cannot find one express example in the experience of the world. Question, and let's stipulate that that's true. I believe it was true at that moment. There was no other regime that had such inclusive popular sovereignty. Was the claim of popular sovereignty, both the fiction and the reality of popular sovereignty, a full expression of the capacities of the emergent American people, or was it a cloak for the limited, for the rule of a limited number who claimed, even in a liberal democracy, to be ruling on behalf of the people? And how would we begin to sort that out, both historically and in today's world? Well, one answer was given by George Bancroft. George Bancroft, some of you will know, um, was uh, America's Tocqueville, not the equal of Tocqueville, but he was the most important historian of America in the 19th century. Um, he was all of 26 years old when he gave, uh, well, Tocqueville was um, roughly the same age when he came to America, 26. Um, I, I think Bancroft may have been 25 when he made this oration. And... Um, Gustave de Beaumont, who came with Tocqueville to America, was all of 29. So graduate students here get working, right? I mean, um, uh, uh, the, at age 25 or 26, Bancroft summarized, uh, I won't read the whole thing, you can read if you like, but the, um, the standing of popular sovereignty in this new republic, 50 years old. It's not a cloak, it's the reality, he says. A government on entirely liberal principles. Very interesting for historians of ideas, a footnote that he uses the word liberal here, but um, a government on entirely liberal principles for which the sovereignty of the people is the basis of the system. With the people, power resides both theoretically and practically. And he goes on to tell us that the people governs solely. It does not divide its power with a hierarchy, a nobility, or a king. The popular voice is all-powerful. This now is uh, nearly a decade before a Democracy in America is published, and Bancroft said, the popular voice is all-powerful with us. This is our oracle. This, we acknowledge, is the voice of God. So the same kind of um, imagery. And he goes on in the second column to see that there's a, this is a form not just of popular godlike control, but of civic egalitarianism. Um, this is an equal people, he tells us, and that's why this regime is essentially radical. It prohibits hereditary distinctions. It diminishes artificial ones. And he ends by saying the wisdom of our people is, the only, is our only, our sufficient constitutional frank pledge. So this is a portrait, one might say even romantic portrait, of... Um, full, equal, effective, knowledgeable citizenship.
But it doesn't answer the question who belongs and who didn't belong. Now, if you go back to the actual origins, um, well before Hobbes and Locke, um, we have the Mayflower Compact in America, which is a, a beginning. And it's a beginning in which, in the presence of God, and so this is a religious, homogeneous community of separatist Puritans who left England because they weren't happy with what they had in England. Um, this is 41 of them um, make this declaration. But they do something remarkable. They don't just create a religious community. Of course, they were a church. They, are they covenant and combine ourselves into a civil body politic. This is a constituent act of politics for our better ordering, etc., etc. And by virtue hereof, we enact, constitute, and frame such just and equal laws, ordinances, acts, constitutions, and offices from time to time as shall be thought meet the convenient for the general good of the colony unto which we promise due submission and obedience. It's two decades and more before Hobbes, but it's very Hobbesian. Um, they're, um, they're a constituent power, and they submit and will obey the regime they, the people, create. But then, in America, how did, how did we get to have we, the people? There were 13, I should, I should have said colonies. They became 13 states, and many peoples. Um, not one population, but um, many. In one valley in New York State, you had people who were English, Scot, Irish, Welsh, Swiss, Dutch, French, Catholic, mostly Huguenot, Walloon, Palatine, Anglicans and Catholics, Sabbatarians, anti-Sabbatarians, singing Quakers and ranting Quakers, Anabaptists, Mennonites, Amish, and Jews. There were black slaves. 15% of the New York population in that valley were slaves. And diverse Native Indians, Lenape, Mohican, Iroquois, Wappinger. We the people? How do, you, how do you come from this to that? Now, Tocqueville has answers. Others have answers. They're, they're partially persuasive. Um, uh, they include the fact that there was a, an English, common English hegemony in governance. They included the experience of distant self-governance of a free people. Um, but nonetheless, I think there's an enormous puzzle here. And the puzzle is one we face today, all the time, of how to create a civic patriotic, if you like, civic people in circumstances of extraordinary diversity. So the shift from the Mayflower Compact, 41 people who worshipped exactly the same, who came together on one ship, um, who all knew each other, uh, to a circumstance in which we create a we, the people of a whole country um, that had unprecedented scale of territory and pluralism, that's quite something. And how do you get to creating a we, the American people? Well, I think it was a combination, a fortuitous, in many ways, combination, fortuitous and fortunate combination of ideas. Um, there were shared grievances as second-class Britons. There was a Hobbesian fight against fear, mostly shared one, mostly against people who were called savages in the Declaration of Independence, the American native peoples. There's a, a common constituent 
power being exercised in, by referenda um, between the founding and the Civil War. Almost every state in the Union created referenda processes to approve constitutions. There was active representation, Locke. There was especially, I'll come back to this, religious toleration and mixed government, so Montesquieu. And also, following from Montesquieu, not just ideas, but those ideas became Madisonian democracy, full of checks and balances, federalism, Bill of Rights, all meant both to prevent the people from becoming a mob and to prevent rulers from becoming predators against the people who possess rights. But all this depended on sectional compromise. Um, many of you know uh, slaves were counted as three-fifths of a person in the Constitution. Without that, the South would have never, the slave South never would have joined the Union. There was an indirectly chosen Senate, an electoral college, and then we also see separation of church and state, First Amendment to the Constitution, and the Naturalization Act of 1790, which opened the doors but not to everyone. It prescribed that the only people who could come to be citizens in America had to be white, and that's explicit in the legislation. And I won't, I'm going to skip the reading, but I urge all of you to read Madison in Federalist 54, in which he explains uh, in beautiful rhetorical prose, how could it be that persons could be three-fifths of a person, um, both vendible and uh, um, under the capricious will of another, um, the slave is degraded, and yet the slave is also a moral person. And this combination, he says, is their true character. But what's striking about this is precisely that it identifies in naked ways the question of borders and borderland. Who qualifies as a whole enough person to become not just a resident but a, but a, a citizen, a, an active, agonistic citizen and a citizen who has claims in a representative democracy? And you may think slavery is just completely different than questions we are asking today, but I don't think it's entirely different because it raises the frontier question between those uh, eligible and those not. And this is probably completely unreadable. It violates every rule of presentation. It's so tiny. So I'll just tell you quickly what it says. It says that in the 1820s and 30s, just at the moment before and during the moment when Tocqueville um, was uh, doing his nine months of field work in America, brilliant field work, and learning about who the people was, um, this godlike people, there were three major initiatives underway with respect to popular sovereignty. The first, we all live with. This was the moment of the invention of a mass of mass political parties. There were parties before. There were parties in America, Federalists and Republicans. There were parties in uh, certainly in England, um, uh, Tories and Whigs, but very thin elite. And um, there was no professional political structure that linked organizations to mobilizing the mass uh, into political life in the way in which the Jackson Democratic Party pioneered. And there's a great book by the historian Richard Hofstadter on the making of the American party system, which I suggest you look at if this is a subject that um, interests you. But it turns out from the beginning that mass political parties are good, really good, at um, political representation, um, but especially good in 
making, helping to make collective decisions about issues that are divisible, that can be cut up or divided and compromised. Um, uh, should tax rates be uh, at 30%, 50%, 60%? Compromise. Should tariffs be at this level or that level to restrict trade? But when it comes to fundamental ethical and normative issues, which always bear on who is the people, mass parties tend not to be very good historically. And certainly the Jackson-Calhoun uh, Democratic Party, the president was Andrew Jackson, um, Tennessee backwoodsman, interesting general, um, and his vice president was John C. Calhoun, the most articulate defender of slavery in the American Republic, a brilliant political theorist. And they invented new steps in popular sovereignty. Um, we see these steps in different places and times. The first one, the, the Jacksonian one, was especially American. It's saying that we, the people, cannot be constrained in where we go, how we act, or even how we carry guns and exercise violence against Indians in particular. Um, we cannot be restrained by the state. It is a feature of popular sovereignty that every citizen can go anywhere and protect his or her own security in advance of the state doing it. Now, there are very few places on earth, governments, that would say that. And the American government then under Jackson was at the edge. But some of this is still there in our European democracies. The, the questions of what is people's voice with respect to exclusion and the other? And how does it get expressed and inserted into political life? And who are the legitimate people determining the boundary points of popular sovereignty? And then you had Calhoun for guarding slavery, and he invented all kinds of means, but that produced an enormous, profound debate in the United States about popular sovereignty in the 1850s when Kansas and Nebraska became states. Great debate over whether they could have slavery. And Senator uh, Douglas, in the Lincoln-Douglas debates, said, the people will decide. Popular sovereignty, the, the people, meaning the white people, white men in that, in that, in that moment, will vote. And they will decide uh, who, whether we can have slavery. And Abraham Lincoln launched his presidential political quest by saying, oh no, that there have some arguments, some issues are not, some divisions, some exclusions are not respectable. Um, there's an ethical component that must exist with respect to popular sovereignty. And that outer limit in America was slavery. And that is not the subject of a popular vote. You cannot determine who is the people by asking existing citizens to determine how fellow human beings count as actual people or as three-fifths of a person. Last section, the permanent crisis of a divided mankind. We'll see um, uh, who is the people. And let me close fairly quickly, but this is in some ways the heart of the matter. Lovely phrase by the late political theorist at Cambridge, uh, taught at Columbia in Cambridge, so I knew Istvan Hunt very well, wrote a brilliant book uh, of essays, The Jealousy of Trade, but his last essay is called The Permanent Crisis of a Divided Mankind. That's our reality. Um, and what do we want normatively? Well, I quoted here Rawls and Charles Taylor. Rawls asks the question, 
and this is a prof the most difficult question, I think. How is it possible that there may exist over time a stable and just society of free and equal citizens profoundly divided by reasonable religious, philosophical, and moral doctrines? This is a problem about political justice, not a problem about the highest good. And Charles Taylor, another great philosopher, tells us how his work has been concerned with creating a society in which people from very different cultures can form together a body politic. And he goes on to talk about that. So these are both practical and normative um, uh, matters. Um, how can we do this? And is this what we want? Um, uh, and um, let me just stipulate that, that this is, a, as Pope John Paul II said, this is the desirable outcome. But we know how hard it is to get there. Um, think about debates during Weimar about the people and the state. Uh, the cover of this book, which is a book by Peter Caldwell called Popular Sovereignty and the Crisis of German Constitutional Law, uh, he wrote, Caldwell wrote, the frontispiece to this book illustrates the way the Constitution itself came into question as part of the debate over constitutional theory, but really a, a question of who's a legitimate people. The cartoon, whose title translates as the Constitutional Dress of 1919, captures Hugo Preuss, the author of the Weimar Constitution, as a Jewish tailor, fitting Germania with a new dress. The Constitutional Dress is made up of rags from a number of foreign sources, English parliamentarism, French constitutionalism, American constitutionalism, and surreptitiously sewed behind Germania's back the ominous Marxism. Germania, looking in the mirror, says, well, the old dress made out of good German fabric suited me better. And I, if I had more time, I would talk about the individuals, Kelsen, Preuss, Heller, Schmidt, et cetera, um, uh, who constituted that debate. But there, perhaps we can come back to that in questions and answers. And then Derrida has given us yet another kind of problem. Um, in commenting on the American Constitution about how sometimes, he would say always, it's the, the textuality, the rhetorical claim to create a people that actually creates the people. That is, there is no a priori people um, prior to the claim that there is such a people. And um, that's also worth thinking about, is who controls the rhetorical um, world of claiming who is the people. What's the relationship between text and reality, fiction and reality, um, and what are the consequences of different relationships for matters of vulnerability? And just moving towards a conclusion, let's just look. I, I made a list. You can make your own list, but there are the bases on which we can claim that there is a people and this is just alphabetical order, common citizenship, community, culture, democracy, ethnicity, faith, family, fatherland, motherland, heimat, indigeneity, kinship, liberalism, nation, patriotism, peoplehood, place, solidarity, state. There are claims of peoplehood based on all of these. And Judith Schlar said about these, one thing, they all, brings them all together, they all invite conflict, trouble is their middle name. So how, finally, would we, should we appraise different kinds of claims? What kinds of standards might we have? And it's with this that I want to close. Let's take two texts that try to set standards for us at a fairly um, elevated philosophical level. 
Schlar, in the essay I've already cited on obligation, loyalty, and exile, and exile, and Rawls in his um, late work, Political Liberalism. Start with Schlar. For Schlar, a, a civic and patriotic people, based on any basis, must include elements of obligation and loyalty. By obligation, she means rule-governed conduct. Political obligation refers to laws and law-like demands. And then loyalty, what distinguishes that, is deeply affective and not primarily rational. There's an emotional character of loyalty. And the question she's, in effect, asking is, how to create, in creating a people, how do we create sufficient common bonds that, that generate emotional, non-rational loyalty consistent with um, obligation? And Rawls says, how under conditions of often deep pluralism, he asks, what is the most appropriate conception of justice for specifying fair terms of social cooperation between citizens regarded as free and equal? Citizens who could combine obligation and loyalty. And there he gives us, um, he argues that in the preferred situation, people with deeply different, often incommensurable views based on faith or other matters um, can and should develop an overlapping civic consensus. And there's the distinction between the following. If I tell you that every religious group has a right to exist and to worship on its own freely, I'm also saying they don't have to give reasons. I don't have to say why I think transubstantiation is this or that, or the meaning of the Eucharist, or it's, it's no obligation to enter into the public sphere with reasons. But once you enter the world of civic community, that's where the obligation to give reasons begins. And what he asks is how can we create circumstances in which out of often deep cultures defined by not giving reason, we create a polity based on giving reasons. And that is how he defines reasonable pluralism. Um, deep incommensurability becomes reasonable pluralism in a civic arena in which giving reasons occurs. And for that, I would argue that the most important, um, or at least arguably the most important institutional dimension was concerns church and state historically, and even for today, toleration and separation. Um, I esteem it above all things necessary, said Locke, to distinguish exactly the business of civil government from that of religion and to settle the just bounds that lie between the one and the other. Without this, there's no hope in hell to, to get people with deeply incommensurable beliefs to join in a common reason-giving in a public sphere. I know, we know, that Locke wasn't perfect, that he existed in a certain time and place, that this had certain rhetorical purposes, but it's a deep principle. And in the American Constitution, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Without that, there could not have been a people in America. And then finally, Justice Story, the same Justice Story you met before, noting how in America the Catholic and the Protestant, the Calvinist and the Arminian, the Jew and the infidel might sit down at the common table of the national councils without any inquisition into their faith or mode of worship. That is, without asking questions about them. But when they got into the public sphere, it was the sphere of Bancroft, of uh, common. And then I'm now truly um, closing. Um, 
the, uh, I want to suggest two things. Uh, first, that we need uh, three kinds of sensibilities or proclivities when we think about these issues. The first is, is what I would call pragmatic and instrumental reason. And the quote is from Edmund Morgan, whom I mentioned, who tells us that long before the quarrel between England and the colonies began, Englishmen and Americans had come up against empirical problems about uh, popular sovereignty and resting government on the will of the people. They had seen the volatility of popular participation in the electorate. They had uh, learned few doubts about the authenticity and usefulness of instructions. They had thereby been given cause to wonder whether the property-holding yeomen of the countries actually exhibited an independence of mind. Questions about the character and capacities of the people. But we also need what John Rawls called realistic utopianism, to imagine a social reality just out of reach that leads us toward not perfectly the world um, preferred by Rawls and by uh, Charles Taylor or Pope John Paul II, but that moves us closer as a goal to that world. And we also need what Judith Clark called a liberalism of fear. A liberalism of fear understands that human cruelty is ever-present and things can always get worse. And finally, standards. I'm just going to state them as my standards. Um, one, standards about the limits, this is Schlar's voice, the limits of cruel insecurity, oppression, and statelessness. It's the Lincoln position. There are some features of human situation hundreds, thousands of people drowning in the Mediterranean that are simply outside the ken of any acceptability. Um, second, there must be liberal constraints on who is the people. Rule of law, individual rights, effective representation. So we often hear claims of popular sovereignty in which illiberal regimes claim it, and we should consider those not respectable claims. And then there has to be a zone between toleration and respect about difference. And there are different dimensions of toleration and respect. Physical presence and security. Can the other be amongst us securely? Can the other attain mainstream material conditions? Can the other have self-determining cultures with a limited giving of reasons yet with liberal constraints? And finally, can the other achieve, at least at some point, civic membership? And finally, it seems to me, there is a kind of formula, back to a model, if you like. Civic obligation, interacting with particular, often intense identities, um, we have to find institutions and ideas that can, in fact, produce collective, patriotic loyalties not a world loyalty, but particular loyalties to particular states and times and places that are worthy of such loyalty and that create a common, responsible, civic world where obligation and loyalty go hand in hand. And finally, I end with my, one of my favorite people, um, Edmund Morgan. Morgan tells us that the will of the people is still uncertain, imperfectly realized, and vulnerable. Perhaps the questions, including all the questions I asked, are unanswerable. But as we look at countries where the quest for better answers has been stifled, and stifled by parties claiming to act in the name of the people, we dare not yet give it up. And it's this kind of sober, factual, critical, passionate 
sensibility exhibited in the great work of Edmund Morgan um, that I hope will animate the quest we undertake together to explore answers to some of the most difficult but significant questions that we have as um, not just as citizens but as fellow humans uh, in today's uh, complex and sometimes very dangerous and cruel world. Thank you. Thank you.